Welcome to our series on the greatest sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. This passage of uh, scripture is found in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel uh, and is probably a distillation of Jesus's teaching, but it contains some of the most profound and beautiful words ever spoken, which really shouldn't surprise us since it comes from the lips of Jesus. But of course, much of it is familiar to us, um, like turning the other cheek, loving our enemies, uh, the Lord's Prayer, the lilies of the field, and so on. So we really need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us and to cause these words of Jesus to penetrate our hearts. As Kent Hughes says in his commentary, as we expose ourselves to the x-rays of Christ's words, we see whether we truly are believers, and if believers, the degree of the authenticity of our lives. No other section of scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. It's violent, but its violence is our ongoing liberation. It's the antidote to the pretense and sham that plagues Christianity. I pray it will bring liberation to our own hearts and lives as we look at this sermon together. You know, I love the image that's painted in Psalm 1 of a blessed man. It says he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That picture of a tree is a picture of serenity, of well-being. It's a picture of a flourishing life, of abundant life. It's a picture that reminds us of the Garden of Eden, where we see fruit trees and a river running through this paradise. And in God's presence, everything flourished. It's where God placed Adam and Eve and walked in relationship with them. It's where he intended for them and their descendants to flourish. But as we know, because of man's sin and rebellion, death and decay came into God's good creation. And man was driven out of his paradise, much like the wicked are in Psalm 1, where it says they will be driven like chaff before the wind. And ever since, man has been seeking to recover what was lost. In every human heart and soul, there is a yearning for Eden, where our deepest longings are satisfied. We try to find satisfaction in the things of this fallen world, but it's all passing away. It doesn't last. Everything withers in the end, like leaves on a dead tree. So how can we truly flourish as God intended for us? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who's continually drinking from God's word, for he is like that flourishing tree. So is that the answer then? Well, didn't the Pharisees meditate on God's law day and night? They sought to obey every part of God's law to the nth degree. And yet, as God said to their ancestors, their hearts were far from him. As Oswald J. Smith said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's why left to ourselves, mankind cannot flourish as God intended. But thank God there is hope. There is good news, because that tree in Psalm 1 is not primarily a picture of us. If you read Psalm 1 and 2 together, as Bible scholars say we should, you realise the blessed man of Psalm 1 is referring to God's anointed king of Psalm 2. It's talking about the Messiah. 
He's the one who delights in God's word and in doing God's will. He is the tree that flourishes, whose leaves will never wither. Can you see? It's pointing us to Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law and did what we failed to do. And all who reject him will be like chaff in the wind. But as it says at the end of Psalm 2, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those Psalms begin and end with blessing. It begins with a blessed man in Psalm 1 and ends with blessed people in Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All who come to Jesus and find refuge in him will flourish. In his kingdom, under his rule and reign, we will flourish. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because that is the good news that Jesus is announcing in the Sermon on the Mount. Some have said, you know, if people would only live by the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be a much better place, which is undoubtedly true. But as we've seen, it's an ideal that's proved impossible for mankind to attain. And anyway, is that what Jesus was saying? That if we just put his teaching into practice, then all would be well in the world. There are certainly a lot of Christians today who think like that. But is that true? You see, how do we interpret this sermon? The answer is found in its introduction, known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus announces good news and is inviting his listeners into this place of flourishing. Let's read it now in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let's just make some observations about these Beatitudes. First of all, Jesus is announcing good news as we see by the repetition of the word blessed. Some translations use the word happy, but that's kind of misleading because we understand happy as a feeling. And Jesus isn't talking about a feeling that kind of comes and goes, but rather a state of blessedness that we can enter into. The word Beatitudes is from a Latin word, meaning blessedness. It's describing a state of well-being, of flourishing, like the blessed man of Psalm 1, who flourishes as a tree by the stream. And this good news that Jesus is announcing is a fulfillment of prophecy. The backdrop to the Beatitudes is Isaiah 61, which uses very similar language. It's where the promised Messiah says, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn, so that they might be called oaks of righteousness. 
And Jesus made it very clear that that prophecy was talking about him. He was the anointed Messiah bringing good news. Because at the beginning of his ministry, in Luke's Gospel, it says that Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah 61 and said to the people, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was the one bringing good news to the poor, which here he says is the poor in spirit. It's not just the uh, material poor, because man's greatest need is spiritual. We have a heart problem. And so Jesus is declaring good news to those who recognize their need, who know they need help. And what is the good news? Blessed are you, said Jesus, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And you'll notice that that phrase is repeated at the end of the Beatitudes as well. So this tells us that the good news is all about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it frames the whole Sermon on the Mount, because at the very center of the sermon, as we'll see another time, are the words, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. So, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's essentially the rule and reign of God, the king of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is not some kind of far-off place that we go to when we die. Jesus made that very clear just before the Sermon on the Mount when he first began preaching. And in Matthew 4 he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was saying it had arrived on earth. It's at hand, he says, which means it's here. God's kingdom, his reign, had broken into human history, which makes sense, of course, because Jesus had come, and he was the promised anointed king. But what Jesus had come to do was very different to what the Jewish people were expecting. This idea of God's kingdom coming was not new to the people of Israel. As we saw, it had been prophesied by Isaiah, and they'd been waiting centuries for the Messiah to come and establish God's rule and reign on earth. But what they understood by it was that God would deliver them from their oppressors, which at the time of Jesus was the Romans. They believed God would cleanse the land of all the unclean Gentiles and establish peace and prosperity to their nation. And crowds were gathering to hear Jesus speak because they thought he might actually be the one to lead them in this political and social revolution, that under his reign, their people would flourish once again. However, the revolution Jesus was announcing was far bigger, far more pervasive than they could have ever possibly imagined. His revolution meant overthrowing Satan, the oppressor of all mankind, and expelling the shadow of evil and death, so that heaven and earth might be brought back into harmony, so that one day there would be a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus coming into the world was the beginning of that revolution. His birth was the dawning of a new age. His crucifixion was the decisive victory over all the powers of darkness. And his resurrection was the start of a new creation coming to birth in the womb of the old. In fact, without the resurrection, the Sermon on the Mount would not be good news. It would just be good advice on how best to live our lives in this world and yet would be impossible to attain. But because of the resurrection, a new creation has come into being that we can become a part of. You know, when we make Jesus our Lord, 
and we go through the waters of baptism, we're united with him in his resurrection. And we become part of the new creation and are empowered by his spirit to live this new life. And that's not just good news, that is astonishing, stunning news. And here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is announcing this new reality that the blessed life that Adam and Eve once enjoyed in the Garden of Eden was in the process of coming true again on earth. But it's not just an announcement. It's an invitation to enter in and to experience this blessed state where we can flourish once again as human beings. Not just sometime in the, in the distant future or when we die, but here and now. You see, blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not will be one day, but is now. It's a life we can enter into now. We can experience his comfort now. Our hunger can be satisfied now. We can see something of God now. Not fully, not yet. One day we'll see him face to face. One day we'll experience paradise in all of its fullness. One day there'll be no limits to our flourishing. One day our deepest longings will be finally and fully satisfied because evil will be vanquished, death will be no more, and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been invited to start living under his rule and reign now. It's an invitation to live a radical new life as part of the new creation in anticipation of what is still to come. And it's a life that should stand out as very different in our society. You can see that right away in the Beatitudes, can't you? Because in the world we live in, people are considered blessed if they have power, right? If you've got wealth, health and success, you are blessed. Blessed are the self-sufficient and the strong. Blessed are the selfish and the celebrated. Blessed are the liars and the bullies and the self-promoters because they're the ones that seem to flourish. It's the opposite to what we see in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes seem upside down in our world. But of course, it's actually our world that is upside down. And we are being called to live differently as part of the new creation that Jesus is establishing. The church is a company of people through whom the kingdom of God is seen on earth as it is in heaven. And what kind of people are they? Well that is what the Beatitudes are describing. As N.T. Wright wrote, he said, when God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks, he sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers, and so on. So let's just look briefly again at those Beatitudes. First, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. They know they've got nothing in themselves to commend them to God, and they're humble because they know they need help. The truth is no one can enter God's kingdom without being poor in spirit. It's what leads us to repent, to turn from uh, our self-sufficiency and turn to Jesus to depend on him. And it's our continual dependence on him that enables us to receive his grace 
and experience the blessings of his kingdom. That is the soil in which we will flourish and grow. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin and who mourn over the sins of the world, over you know, the brokenness and the injustice and the suffering it causes. For those who truly care about such things, they will be comforted. Of course, one day we'll experience the ultimate comfort when heaven comes to earth. And as it says in Revelation 21, God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. You know, we live in the hope of that day and it's closer today than it was yesterday. But until that day comes, God is very close to the brokenhearted. As it says in 2 Corinthians 1, it says, He is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. It's what enables his people to flourish when things are hard. Next, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, the meek sound kind of wishy-washy, don't they? But they're not. They're strong, like Jesus, who later in Matthew 11 says, Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Or in the King James Version, it says, meek and lowly. And Jesus wasn't wishy-washy, but his strength was under control. He showed patient restraint. And that's really what meek means in the Bible. Even though Jesus had all authority and power, he used it to serve others, even when they meant him harm. He didn't retaliate when he was mocked and spat upon. He forgave those who hurt him. He repaid evil with love. And those who follow his way, who, like Jesus, are willing to forego worldly power, they are the ones who will inherit the earth which is completely upside down to the way our world thinks. And so Christians who think that having political power is the only way forward for human flourishing really need to think again. The fact is, things may not go our way. We may well be mistreated, as Jesus was. Plus, it says in Psalm 37, it's those who do not fret, but who entrust their cause to the Lord. They are the ones who will inherit the earth and will flourish. And it's not just some future day, but here and now. Because as we pray, and as we do good, and follow the way of Jesus in this world, we are bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And so next it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As I said before, you know, man tries to find satisfaction in the things of this world. Our hearts are hungry, our souls are thirsty, but nothing seems to satisfy. And if we find in ourselves a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then as C.S. Lewis said, it must mean we're made for another world, which of course is true. We're still yearning for Eden. We're yearning for the kingdom of heaven to be restored on earth, where we can enjoy perfect communion with God and one another, where there is peace and harmony, where we can flourish like a tree by streams of water. That is where we'll find our ultimate satisfaction and where our joy will be full. But what is the righteousness that brings us satisfaction? It's really life in his kingdom. And what does life in his kingdom look like? Well, that is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. But ultimately, it looks like Jesus. 
It's why the last Beatitude says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he repeats it for emphasis and says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Can you see, first he says, we'll be persecuted because of righteousness. And then he says, persecuted because of me. It amounts to the same thing because righteousness looks like Jesus. So hungering and thirsting for righteousness is hungering and thirsting to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus. And as we do so, we will increasingly become like Jesus. We'll get the desire of our hearts and we'll be satisfied because we'll become more truly human. You see, Jesus is not only fully human, he's also the truest human being to have ever lived. And so in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting us into a new way of being human, which of course is actually the original way. When we follow the ways of Jesus and become like him, we follow the path to true humanity. And so we'll find the longings of our hearts are satisfied because we will experience that state of blessedness and flourishing as God originally intended in the Garden of Eden. And we can experience that even while we are living in this world where there is still suffering and pain, right? Where we can expect to be persecuted and insulted and mistreated as Jesus was. If we're truly seeking to be like Jesus, then we have to expect the same thing. But it's through our suffering that Christ is being formed in us and we're being prepared for the new heavens and the new earth that is coming. Blessed are those who have found refuge in him, for we have found our reward. But as for the wicked, they'll be like chaff before the wind. Now, I've skipped over three Beatitudes that are kind of sandwiched between hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being persecuted because of righteousness, which tells me that those three Beatitudes are further descriptions of his righteousness. It is merciful, it's pure in heart, and it's peacemaking. Those are three key themes in the Sermon on the Mount. And like the rest of the Beatitudes, they characterize Jesus. He is merciful, he is pure in heart, and he is a peacemaker. And so that should characterize his followers as well. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. But I want to close by just commenting on the pure in heart. It's talking about a wholehearted orientation towards God. Right? The Beatitudes really have to do with a heart attitude. We cannot live the way that Jesus is prescribing in the Sermon on the Mount unless our hearts are right. It's not just a matter of external obedience to God's commands. As I said at the beginning, the Pharisees sought to obey every letter of the law, but Jesus called them hypocrites because their hearts were wrong. Jesus said they honoured God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They didn't have a heart of love for God and for their neighbour. They were not pure in heart, and so they didn't see God, even when he was standing right in front of them. In fact, they crucified him. But ever since the fall, it's been a condition that affects all mankind. As I mentioned, the heart of the human problem 
is the problem of the human heart. And we'll never experience this state of blessedness. We'll never enter God's kingdom and be able to live the Sermon on the Mount unless our hearts are changed. But that was part of the good news that Jesus was announcing. Centuries before, God had already made a promise to his people through the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He promised to cleanse his people from their uncleanness. And then in Ezekiel 36, he said, I will give you a new heart. Elsewhere, he says, an undivided heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and move you to walk in my statutes and obey my commands. Or as it says in Jeremiah 24, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Then he goes on to say how his people will flourish in the land. He says, I will make the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field abundant. Jesus came to fulfill that promise. He came to cleanse us of our sin and to give us his own spirit so that we could become part of the new creation he's ushering in. It's those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger for righteousness. It's the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers and so on who have been given new hearts, pure hearts to truly know God and be empowered to live for him and flourish in his world. And next week, we'll see how he intends for that flourishing to spread. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Do you know God? Turn to Jesus today. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here are some questions for small group discussion. First, did you gain any new insights from this message? What were they? Secondly, why is being poor in spirit necessary for receiving the kingdom of heaven? Third, in what ways is God changing you to become more like Jesus? Fourth, how should these Beatitudes affect our relationship with other people? Where do you need God's help right now? and then end by praying for one another. Let's show you.